If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 2 and 8 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. For I, the Lord, love justice and hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations." Here ends the reading of the word inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Last Sunday, Lori explained how the gospel writers took the words of Old Testament prophets and adapted them to look like predictions of the coming of Jesus. The first lines of this morning's text from Isaiah might also sound familiar, at least if you are a Bible geek. They are the words spoken by Jesus himself in the first and apparently only sermon he preached inside a synagogue. The spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke's gospel, it is Jesus himself who says about this prophecy by Isaiah, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one Isaiah predicted. Like it or not, and clearly they did not end up liking it at all, Jesus is saying that if you take your greatest prophet seriously, then you will take me seriously. And at first the crowd loved it. Such a fine lad, such a good public speaker. But then... Well, let's face it, he got political. He stood to read the scroll and did a lovely job. Then he sat down for the sermon 
and the trouble began. He said, I'm paraphrasing now, so you love Isaiah, but you don't do what Isaiah called you to do. Feed the hungry, protect the weak, live your religion outside these walls. I guess people really have never liked being called hypocrites, even by someone who is well-spoken. So after the service, they tried to kill him. Lori and I appreciate very much the fact that although sometimes you wish we were not so political, you have not tried to kill us. <laughs> Our spouses appreciate it too, sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes we think you don't fully understand what the word political means to us. It does not mean only left and right, conservative and liberal, Democrat and Republican, but something much more important. Namely, how does the gospel say that power should be exercised and to what effect? Especially to what effect on the poor, the weak, the lonely, the forgotten, the stranger, the one who is about to lose her health insurance. I will admit that like many of you, for some strange reason, I've walked around since Tuesday humming Sweet Home Alabama, but not because the impossible happened and a Democrat won an election there, but because decency won. Despite robocalls from one abuser to support another abuser, the people of Alabama said, nope, Nope, there is a level beneath which we will not descend just for the sake of party affiliation. That's hopeful. Which brings me back to Isaiah and to some verses that are not as well known, but may be just what we need to hear at Christmas time. Beginning at verse eight, for the, I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. And what exactly is that covenant? Is it not at its best to think of no one as the enemy, but rather as real and redeemable human beings? I don't know what people think Christmas means anymore, but I've come to regret, almost to the point of despair, this frantic, artificial time when in the name of celebrating the birth of a subversive savior, an unlikely messiah, a revolutionary for the cause of resistance to empire, we rush about worshiping the empire, spending more money than we should or even have and driving very badly. The only thing about Christmas I still find compelling is that if taken seriously, it constitutes a kind of spiritual insurgency. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, really. Turn the other cheek, go the second mile, forgive the wrongs done to you so the wrongs you have done might be forgiven. It is all so incredibly subversive that only on rare occasions do we glimpse the power of it, but when we do, we never forget. One such moment came a hundred and four years ago in the First World War as British and German soldiers faced each other across the muddy fields of Flanders on Christmas Eve, 1914. They thought the war would end by Christmas, but instead it dragged on for another four years, resulting in the staggering death toll of 8.5 million 
and 21 million wounded. Trench warfare, they call it, an absolute horror that is hard to describe. But by Christmas Eve, the soldiers were weary, dispirited, bogged down in mud and blood with little sense of purpose other than to defeat the enemy. This was an enemy it could look in the eye as some trenches were a mere 60 yards apart. Think about that on a football field. That's not very far. Pope Benedict XV had taken office in September and, like any good pope, called for a Christmas Day truce along the Western Front. He wanted everyone to stop fighting for one day, but the generals would have nothing to do with it. And then on Christmas Eve, after a long day of men firing across no man's land, littered with dead bodies, something remarkable happened, something unforgettable. German soldiers began to put small Christmas trees lit with candles outside of their trenches. At first, some of the British soldiers fired on the Christmas trees. Then the Germans started singing, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And the sound of that carol came floating above the trenches and hung in the air on a moonlit night with frost on the ground. British and French troops began singing their songs, O come all ye faithful, and the Germans joined in using the Latin phrase, Adeste Fidelis. One of the soldiers wrote in his diary, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing, two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. But the truth is many of the Germans had worked in England before the war and spoke some English well enough to communicate their desire for their own Christmas truce. The next morning, Christmas morning, German soldiers left their trenches without their weapons and headed across no man's land <coughs> holding up signs that read, you no shoot, we no shoot. And what took place that day, although embellished, was well documented in the diaries of soldiers who took part and in their oral testimonies of the event years later. They actually met in the middle of the killing fields and they exchanged gifts of cigarettes, food, buttons, and caps. Each side had a chance to bury their dead comrades whose bodies had lain for weeks in the space between the trenches. In one account, a British soldier had his hair cut by his pre-war German barber. Another spoke of a pig roast, and several mentioned, if not soccer games in any recognizable form, what the men in those days called kickabouts, with makeshift soccer balls. According to an official war diary of the 133rd Saxton Regiments, Tommy and Fritz kicked about a real football supplied by a Scot. This developed into a regulation football match with caps casually laid out to mark the goals. The frozen ground was no matter. The game ended three to two for Fritz. Each side brought chocolate cake, cognac, postcards, and newspapers. These were the Christmas gifts the gifts that each nation had delivered to the trenches for their own soldiers, and now the men were giving them away in a truce to the enemy, except that on this one day there was no enemy. 
And if there is no enemy, there is no war. Although in some places the truce failed and the soldiers were even shot as they emerged from their trenches, in some places it held. And one soldier wrote in his diary, quote, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. It was a short piece in a terrible war. The generals, as you might guess, were furious and ordered their troops to resume killing the enemy instead of fraternizing with them under threat of court-martial. So the men shook hands, returned to their trenches, and resumed the madness that is war. It would not be until the armistice of November 11, 1918, that the shooting would finally stop. And then, of course, 21 years later, <coughs> it would start again when the Germans invaded Poland. One can rightly see the Christmas truce of 1914 as just a blip, an aberration, a momentary pause in the real business, which is to make enemies, keep enemies, and kill enemies. The English rock band The Farm, decades later, summed up the results after these men had, quote, joined together and decided not to fight, but failed. There was, quote, nothing learned and nothing gained. A Scottish poet wrote, a carol from Flanders and ended it this way. O oh, ye who read this truthful rhyme from Flanders kneel and say, God speed the time when every day shall be as Christmas day. And there's another way to understand what happened long ago on that moonlit light night, however, and it is profoundly theological and subversive when the men on the ground decided they were not fighting the same war as their superiors, they suspended the idea of the enemy itself. So close they were to one another that they could hear each other and even smell their cooking. This proximity is very dangerous if you're a war planner or a war profiteer. The commander of the British Second Corps General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, a British name if I've ever heard one, believed that this proximity posed, quote, the greatest danger to the morale of soldiers and told divisional commanders to explicitly prohibit any, quote, friendly exchanges with the enemy. In a memo issued December 5, he warned that, quote, Troops in trenches in close proximity to the enemy slide very easily, if permitted to do so, into a live-and-let-live theory of life. Well, we can't have that. One soldier wrote about the Christmas truce, saying, I came to the conclusion that I've held very firmly ever since, that if we'd been left to ourselves, there would never have been another shot fired. Adolf Hitler was a corporal of the 16th Bavarians at the time and said, quote, such a thing should not happen in wartime. Have you no German sense of honor? What I've been wondering as we approach the darkest night of the year and we sing these carols of peace on earth and goodwill toward everyone is whether we've allowed our dreams to get too small. Because, you know, we're hooked up to our devices and we're seldom left alone with our thoughts. Too 
Let those bigger dreams that come into our minds and hearts when we stop thinking about the latest outrage, the idiocy of our politics, or the shameless greed of the holidays. These larger dreams, bigger visions, are not allowed to visit the empty space we hold open because we fill them constantly with nonsense. Henry Nouwen once summed up the spiritual life this way, to hold open empty space. Truth be known, the nativity itself, the baby Jesus, is a spiritual apocalypse. It is a profoundly tender, profoundly impractical, profoundly subversive reversal of the world's broken and deadly wisdom. If we could just see one another, look each other in the eye, smell one another's cooking, exchange gifts without strings attached, and most of all, most of all, if we could just sing together, we would lose our enemies, and without an enemy, there is no war. Or as Edwin Starr belted out for my generation in 1970, those primal lyrics with that primal question, war. <laughs> good God, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Listen to me. We need bigger dreams. We are choking to death on these little ones. That's why we say wage peace in our benediction at Mayflower because peace is harder than war. Our reptilian brains need an enemy, so Jesus said, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. And every time I hear that beautiful absurdity from the Sermon on the Mount, I also hear the empire's response, the echo of the masters of war, those who lust after the spoils of war, muttering to themselves, lovely, lovely idea, pass the eggnog, now, moving on, will all the real warriors get back in your foxholes and resume killing for me? Kill for my mansion, kill for my jewels, kill for my golf courses, kill for my limo and my private security detail, kill for my wine cellars, kill for my mistresses, kill for my gilded, gaudy, sad, sad, sad little life that depends upon making and keeping enemies and saying, you're fired. My God, man, have you no American sense of honor? Don't get too close to the enemy or some of his humanity may rub off on you and one of these days we'll give a war and nobody will come. Israel, 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 there is no peace and will be no peace until you get to know the Palestinians. Smell their food, sing their songs, learn how to say, Asalaam alaikum, alaikum, alaikum. Jared Kushner, do you know what it's really like to live in the West Bank and Gaza, do you? Palestinians, there will be no peace until you get to know the Jews and what they have suffered, what they fear. Don't deny the Holocaust. Try some matzo ball soup. Learn to say Shabbat Shalom. And if the yarmulke fits, wear it. And learn a few Yiddish songs. Ask to meet at a hole in the wall right in the middle of no man's land and see if it might be possible, although highly improbable, like faith, to actually share Jerusalem. How about we share Jerusalem? Maybe there's enough Jerusalem to go around if we just call a truce. Put down your weapons and take a field trip. Start at the Western Wall, but not just for a photo op. Go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
and then go to the Dome of the Rock. I know it's a lot to do in one day, but by evening you will know that there are already three spiritual capitals located in Jerusalem, and they must not be divided. Exchange gifts, sing new songs, try some new food outside your comfort zone. You may be invested in the war, but God wants a truce and a permanent one. And how many times do we have to go over this? Without an enemy, there can be no war. Without an enemy, there can be no war. Without an enemy, there can be no war. So how's that for a new holy trinity? Ah, my search for alternative holy trinities continues. So Mayflower, here's wishing you a deep Christmas with big dreams and more eye contact and more smelling other people's food and more singing, oh, especially more singing, much, much, much more singing. I say we start right now. Grab your, grab your hymnals, 125, stand up as if the world depended on it, because it does. <laughs> You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.